As you begin the sitting, you can feel your body. Listen to the sounds that may be in the room. Feel the breath as it's naturally appearing, the nostrils, or the rising and falling movement of the chest or the abdomen. Allow your mind to rest in that natural feeling of the breath. You don't have to make it better or different, fuller, deeper, softer, anything. Simply be with it as it appears, as it goes away. And something arises that's strong enough to become the predominant object, to take your attention away from the breath. That same relaxed, gentle, complete awareness, open to that experience, can make a mental note of just what you're experiencing in the moment. Recognize it. After some time, return the attention to the feeling of the breath. Do you have any questions about your practice? Anything in the sitting or in the walking? or in the eating, or in the walking around, or in the opening doors. And yeah. I think it's okay that it's nice. <laughs> the the uh, difference between uh, connecting to something and enjoying it on the one hand and getting attached to it on the other uh, becomes clear as the more clear as the the nice, pleasant, wonderful experience begins to fade. You know, so can we experience it fully and enjoy it when it's there and let it go as it goes is really the question. But definitely, you know, there's, um, there's a tremendous amount of pleasure just in connecting to simple things that we often overlook because we're moving too quickly, we're too lost in thought, we're uh, oblivious to what we're actually experiencing. And it's great to reconnect, to come back to, and to feel more fully all of these simple things.
I've noticed since the beginning of the retreat that I know the, the words and tunes that several hundred pop songs. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of a similar question, but it's, I feel that I'm not, I'm not really connecting. It's more like I'm absorbed or uh, I'm indulged in, in this tune, this series of tunes. Um, I was just wondering if the Buddha had any instructions. <laughs> well, the first rule of the uh, community practicing here together is that you must never mention an actual tune because it spreads. And all of a sudden, everyone will be hearing exactly the same tune. So, Thank you for the discretion of your question. Um, if you feel that you're being absorbed rather than uh, having the sense of mindful awareness. It's very, very helpful to be using the mental noting uh, to actually say hearing and to observe what happens to this object as you note it. You know, not in um, a long-term picture, but in the, in the few moments after you note it, what happens to it? Does it get louder? Does it fade? Um, does it change in some way? Does it stay exactly the same? Which it might. Uh, and at that point, see if you can let it be in the background and be more fully connected to the breath or to the body or something like that. In other words, don't fight it, but don't get uh, overcome by it you know, as much as you can. And it's very common. You know, if you were... Uh, practicing in Burma, you might actually have the experience of hearing them played over many loudspeakers. <laughs> uh, so you can imagine how much uh, it comes up. But uh, it's, it's a challenge in the way that many things are a challenge. Don't fight it, and also don't get entangled in it. Try to note it as best you can. I think if if you can note it as remembering um, easily, then that's fine. You know, the the exact note that you use uh, is not necessarily crucial. Uh, You don't want to spend time discussing with yourself which is which is the best note, which is a very great temptation. Um, if you can note it as remembering, that's perfect. You know, but if that if that seems uh, not clear to you at the time that that it's coming up, then just whatever hearing or smelling or whatever. Right, right. It's like a mind object.
flitting, moving person, <laughs> and the birds come close, and the sun rises between the, the trees. And so I said to myself, okay, I'm going to stick to one object. I'll open everything I can experience here. And when I do this, uh, my attention gets so shaken from one side to the other, sometimes so fast, that at some point I don't know anymore if I'm mindful at all, or if I'm just strolling along without any consciousness. There's something nice to say about Yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I think it comes back to um, using a very gentle and rhythmic mental notation uh, toward your experience. It's not the time to try to limit um, or have an exclusive awareness on a single object because there's a lot happening. I think opening up is, is the right um, movement of the mind. And if you can just gently note seeing when that's the predominant experience and hearing, it's not rapid fire and it's not um, uh, very effortful. It's just a gentle recognition. This is the predominant experience. And it, you know, it can be very uh, smooth because you develop a rhythm. Just no seeing. Hearing. Sometimes people feel that by making the mental notation they are um, going to be dismissing the experience or, or even destroying the experience. And that's not the point. It's an act of recognition. Uh, and it's, it's a protection because it is easy to be walking in the woods and to be experiencing the sunlight and the birds and and the fresh air and all the loveliness of that. And then uh, before we know it, we're in another country, in another time, uh, lost in thought, having been lost in thought for perhaps a very long time, uh, worried, anxious, dismayed, all about things that are not happening right now. And so we tend to emerge from those those periods... um, feeling depleted, feeling more depleted, less energy, because it's just been so consuming while it's been happening. And so you can actually more enjoy the experience of being in the woods by being mindful of it rather than enjoying it less. Just very gently use the noting in that way. I'd say just as it comes. You know, there are techniques that actually do it in in the way you're describing it, um, with a very purposeful noticing of hearing and then seeing and then and then walking and so on. But uh, you can you can certainly try just as it comes, just as it arises. Yeah. Yeah, I think the way that the word consciousness was being used before meant mindfulness. It didn't actually mean uh, consciousness. Yeah, we're seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, or having a mind object um, every single moment. 
unless you can discover something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm having one of those periods days <laughs> where I should be wearing a T-shirt that said, I went to the long retreat in Barry and all I got were these lousy sore legs. <laughs> and um, I suppose you would give me a short statement of why we're here and what we're doing Not only that, I will give you a radical uh, suggestion. <laughs> Sit in a chair. <laughs> um, <laughs> and as to my suggestion, uh, I really mean that. You know, that um, the idea is not just to suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer. The idea is to have a mind so open uh, and spacious and connected that we can be with pleasure and pain. We can be with uh, tremendous joy and great suffering because they both happen, uh, whether we like that or not. That's just the, the natural movement of life is through pleasure and pain and getting what we want and not getting what we want and so on. And um, it's really not to just suffer and suffer and suffer. It is uh, to discover this capacity within us of awareness, which is so open and so spacious that it it can allow us to connect to all of that fully. Um, And sometimes just being with painful feeling relentlessly is too tiring. It is too exhausting. We feel um, dispirited, disheartened in some way. And it's better uh, to find a different balance. You know, sometimes to be working with the painful experience and sometimes just to be in a more tranquil, um, serene, non-challenged experience. Well, uh, pushing through is um, perhaps not exactly the right image. (laughs) Uh, And what I said in terms of sitting in a chair is uh, also applicable to a larger sense of uh, being comfortable. You know, I wouldn't... uh, get frenzied trying to create great comfort, but, but to understand the place of some uh, tranquility of mind and ease of mind. Um, and that is simply to connect to what's happening. Uh, I'd go out into the woods, um, go outside, feel the wind, look at the sky, Uh, feel your feet against the ground, have a cup of tea, feel the warmth of the cup, and to actually enjoy the simplicity of those moments and the the feeling of fullness of those moments. We tend to be very... um, 
Well, we really experience junkies in our culture. You know, we have the opportunity to have a tremendous variety and intensity of different experiences and levels of stimulation. And when we we feel incomplete or we feel bored or we feel dissatisfied, our tendency and our training is to reach out for a higher level of stimulation. Um, we want something great to happen so that we can wake up and feel alive. One of the things about being on retreat is the reversal of that tendency. Very rarely in our lives, if we feel incomplete or we feel dissatisfied um, or we feel restless or we feel bored, very rarely do we look at the quality of our attention to see whether we have actually been present with what's going on. More commonly, we... Um, we, in a sense, we blame the object. We said, well, it wasn't exciting enough, it wasn't gratifying enough, it wasn't good enough, I'd better find something else. And so we look for something that will, that will once again give us a charge or a moment of, of feeling really there, or really alive. And then, of course, that fades and we have to look for something else and something else and something else. It's kind of the pattern of addiction that we have um, all of us in our culture because it's so available. And so what we do is really always come back to the quality of our attention rather than trying to find that magnificent thing out there that will finally make us completely awake. Um, We always come back to the quality of our attention because we can have that feeling of fullness and wholeness and completeness with anything. One breath, another breath, even though we've already felt seven zillion today, Okay, here it is. It's right here. Um, You know, so I would relax, actually, rather than try to push through and feel the the joy of those moments of, of connecting in the simplest possible way to what is actually happening. One of the biggest problems we have is forgetting the moment-to-moment nature of things. Um, it's like I've probably had a million sittings in which I've looked back over the sitting and said, okay, was it, a, was it a good one or a bad one? But it wasn't any one thing. It was a moment of this and a moment of that and a moment of liking it and a moment of not liking it and so on. Every time we clump those moments together and make it a seemingly solid whole, we're in trouble. You know, I did that with the past. We do that with the future. There are how many hours left to this retreat? Has anyone figured it out? (gasps) You know? And it seems very, very uh, overwhelming, clumped together. But all it is is a succession of moments, one moment at a time. And we have the, the potential of actually connecting with each one of them. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. Do you have any questions about your practice? Anything that's happening? Alma?
Uh, I think, yes, mindfulness will stay more steady if there's interest in what's going on. Um, And some of the ways in which we work with interest are are really very simple. Uh, First, it's to see if there is aversion to what is happening, dislike, dismay, a feeling like, I have to get through this quickly to get to the other side of it. Um, And if you find that quality of impatience or dislike or dismissing, you know, this isn't good enough, this isn't right, any of those aspects of aversion, it's, in some ways, it's like feeling the energetic consequence of that, how it's making you pull back or or try to push through rather than actually connect to what's going on. It's feeling the energetic consequence of that, letting go of it, coming back to balance just with what's happening, this very breath, this sound, whatever. Sometimes... Um, we lose interest because things are repetitious. It's one more breath, and I've just felt 50 billion. I don't want to feel one more. Uh, and again, it's like it's feeling what happens within us, how we're relating to the breath because we're lost in that, in that thought or that determination and coming back, really connecting to just this one breath. It doesn't matter what's already gone by. It doesn't matter what hasn't yet come. We don't have to anticipate it. It's just always coming back. And we arouse interest in very simple ways like that. If you're working with the breath, try to feel the very beginning of it and the end of it, and then the moment in between. Is there a gap or a pause? The beginning of the out-breath and the very end of it. You know, it's, it's not necessarily an analytical process or a very elaborate process. It's really about the gathering up of our energy to fully connect to what's happening in this moment. Ah, we've come to the end of questions. (laughs) Yeah? Um, Last year, um, there was a, for me, the end of the retreat to root it out. And this year, it hasn't come up with anywhere near the feeling charge, but still the thoughts come up from time to time. And it's one thing to work with a state of mind that is painful um, because anger (coughs) or heavy aversion is painful, but it's another thing to work with when there isn't really a whole lot of feeling charge. so as I'm, what I'm saying is that the thoughts are present, they are aversive, the feeling charge isn't there. There doesn't seem to me to be a lot of impetus to rid myself of them in a way. And yet, they're there. So I'm wondering if there's some way to, uh, to work with that. Um, you know, I, what I'm saying is that I can't seem to locate in the body some feeling that I can then say, oh, yeah, okay, I feel that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the answer is on many levels. You know, if, if the thought pattern is actually obsessive, there is 
almost always some kind of feeling that's generating it. It may not be heavy aversion this year. <laughs> it may be anxiety. You know, it, it may be something much more subtle, much more difficult to locate. So, for example, when I was... I used the example many weeks ago of the time when I was first practicing sitting in India, and I had a lot of... Um, incessant, continual planning about how I was going to manage to spend the entire rest of my life in India, which, of course, I didn't do. Um, but I had, I had a lot of anxiety about that. I was sure that I needed to do that, that that's what was going to happen, had to happen, and somehow I had to make it work, and so I'd plan, and I'd plan, and I'd plan, and I'd plan, because of that uneasiness, you know, that uncertainty, and that wanting to feel more in control. Um, than I actually was. So it can be a subtle feeling like that. It isn't necessarily a massive, intense uh, aversion attack. And I would look for that. You know, there may be some more subtle feeling, but the goal is not to get rid of the thoughts. And so uh, if you're looking for a strategy or a way to to rid yourself of um, these difficult thoughts, then that's not quite the right spirit with which uh, to be doing the practice. You can be perfectly mindful with those thoughts arising, arising a lot. Um, there really isn't a picture of the perfect meditative experience. You know, it doesn't mean no thoughts doesn't mean only beautiful, lofty, spiritual, loving, compassionate thoughts. Uh, There is no model of what should and what should not be arising in our experience. And that is perhaps, at least for a lot of people, that's the most difficult thing to believe and to integrate into our practice. And so... uh, you can be quite mindful, even with a whole train of very oppressive, conventionally speaking, difficult, obsessive thoughts. The question is remembering to apply mindfulness as much as you can. You know, and, and that's as simple as saying thinking. There's thinking. Or there's that thought again, with some lightness and some spaciousness in the relationship to it. You know, that that's really the whole point. But it's, it's an interesting question because um, maybe more than anything else in those conscious or unconscious models we have of what good meditation should look like exists this dilemma about thinking. And so people very often judge their practice on the basis of whether thoughts are arising, whether they're arising a lot, whether they're boring, stupid, trivial thoughts, or whether they're you know, terrible, demeaning, degrading, awful, angry thoughts, uh, and so on. And it's actually not relevant. So I wouldn't... Uh, work with that that extra burden of feeling like, oh no, you know, this is here and and I can't find the the way to release it because I can't find the emotion. Releasing it 
ultimately means being able to see through it, to see that it's here, it's arising, it's passing, to see its, its nature as anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Okay, well, noting as a technique, as a supportive technique for mindfulness is, is uh, delicate. You know, it's, it's not a particularly easy thing to do just right. Um, but it's helpful enough, or it's, it's so helpful when it's done just right, that we often urge people to try to play with those balances, to to find that delicate place. Sometimes people note uh, too elaborately. You know, I've done, myself, I've done hours of practice in which it's almost as though I was sitting there reading a thesaurus. You know, I was trying to think, well, is this, you know, is it discomfort or could you actually call it pain? Or, I mean, well, maybe, you you know, maybe it's actually agony. I mean, is it agony or is it, you know... um, you know, and you don't need to do that. It's really, it's just the, a basic, truthful recognition of what is. As long as the note bears a relationship to what's actually happening, it's enough. Um, we use the noting to point the mind to the actual experience, not to obliterate the experience or take over, but to actually bring the attention there. Um, For example, you may be feeling an emotion, such as anger, and rather than actually feel the feeling, which is difficult, we tend to fixate on the story or the situation or the incident that seems to be what the anger is about. Especially in this context, um, you know, where people have gotten very sensitive and there's silence and, and we're pretty much removed from the outside world, the incident or the situation is often absolutely irrelevant to the feeling of the anger. It's time for anger to come up in somebody's experience and it finds something to land upon. So it's not true, really, that you are ready to kill because somebody you know, cut in front of you on the lunch line or or something like that. But the intensity of the feeling can be very, very strong. 
And we use the noting to point back to the feeling rather than fixate on, well, I'm going to write them a note, and then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, and then, you know, no, 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 no. Rather than being lost in the story, we use the note, oh, anger, there's anger, which actually brings us back to, to what is actually happening. If you find that you're noting too soon, then I would watch the rhythm of that, try to soften, bring the note, have the note arise with the experience. It's not separate from it. Just have it arise with it. Sometimes we note too late, um, not so much in the case of thinking, where we may not see the thought until it's already in the middle, but in activity, say in the walking, you may be noting lifting, moving, placing, and you may not note lifting until your leg is already up in the air. It's too late. And it's, it's a feeling of being out of harmony. Try to note lifting in the beginning of the lifting movement. Have them come together. Um, if you find, as you described, that you're noting thinking and it's ending the thought, that might be fine. You know, look to the quality of the tone of voice of the note. Sometimes, sometimes thoughts end simply because we're not feeding them. So it isn't necessarily that you are attacking the thought with the note. You may be, <laughs> but that's something you can tell. You know, not because the thought goes away, but just listen to the tone of a voice of the note. If it's very harsh, if it's very abrupt, try to soften it. Um, and if something continues like a thought, keep noting it. Find a rhythm. It doesn't have to be rapid-fire noting as though you're afraid to actually experience what's going on. You know, like thinking, 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 thinking. But note, thinking, thinking. Or whatever rhythm of presence and, and connection actually, actually suits you. Note it maybe five or six times if you're working with a primary object. See if you can come back to the primary object. It's the breath or the sound or whatever. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. You know, maybe it's uh, very strong. It's still happening. Go back. Do the same thing. So. Okay, I want to make um, all the same announcements that have been made before. <laughs> One more time. Sutta? Uh, the word in Pali, sutta, S-U-T-T-A, is the same as the word in um, Sanskrit for sutra, which is a, you know, a teaching or a discourse of the Buddhas. I don't know a particular uh, discourse, but I think it's a theme <laughs> that, that appears, yeah. 
you need to know which one or you need to know you need to know which sutta or you need to know uh, about it <laughs> okay <laughs> um, well it, it occurs in in several different ways when uh, concentration and when qualities like concentration and rapture, uh, particularly those two, but other of the different factors of enlightenment are getting developed, then because of that uh, particular quality of energy returning and, and coming together and unifying, there are a lot of uh, pleasant, even glorious kinds of experiences that happen. Um, the actual experiences are temporary manifestations of the concentration uh, and, and the other qualities. Sometimes when concentration gets very strong and even when <clears throat> rapture gets very strong, the manifestations are unpleasant. You know, people feel strange sensations in the body that they don't really like. And, uh, you know, then they go to a teacher and the teacher kind of smiles and says, oh, that's rapture. <laughs> and usually you think, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's not rapture. Um, but it really is just about these, um, these temporary manifestations of those qualities. When the manifestation is pleasant, of course, we like it. And we forget that it's just in some ways a side product. It's like a, taking a, a pill and having a side effect. Um, and so we get lost in uh, either analyzing it, trying to figure out what it's about, or trying to hold on to it, trying to recreate it, make it happen again. And it's really all beside the point. You know, it's just something that's happening as a function of these qualities growing stronger. Um, there are certain times in the practice uh, <coughs> when there's also a lot of insight developing. And if you go back to an understanding of the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and um, essencelessness, or selflessness, the practice without our predetermination and without our decision and even without our permission winds its way through different levels of seeing those three insights and each of those insights has its own feeling tone so that uh, when we're developing insight into into dukkha into unsatisfactoriness it doesn't feel the same way as it does when we're developing insight into anatta. Um, and impermanence, even within impermanence, there are many different kinds of feelings and flavors, so that if in the practice the mind is just naturally alighting upon or falling upon the beginnings of things, uh, it, you know, we're seeing coming into being, we're seeing renewing, we're seeing arising. Um, it's like seeing birth, you know, and it's, it's wonderful. It tends to be a period of practice which feels really good. Uh, 
and anybody would call it like a peak experience, you know. It's, it's all that wonderful feeling of things coming into being. And then there are times when, again, it's not, you know, it's not a question of our, something under our control. It's just a, a movement. It's a natural evolution through practice. There are times when the mind is naturally alighting upon the endings of things. And everything's to be, seems, everything seems to be passing away. And it's very vague. We feel like we can't really connect to anything. It's, um, uh, sometimes people describe it like there's a veil between their awareness and, and the object and the experience. And they can't really connect. And there's, there doesn't seem to be anything to hold on to. And, and there's not even really anything to experience. You know, it's all so fleeting. And, and that doesn't tend to be a very glorious period in practice in terms of our interpretation and our relationship to it. You know, most people don't like that. Um, and yet it's just always changing. You know, sometimes we're seeing impermanence in one way, sometimes we're seeing it in another way, sometimes we're seeing dukkha, even if we'd really rather not. You know, sometimes we're seeing anatta, and yet we can't make that last either. Uh, so it's always, it's always this, this flow of deepening insight, but we don't always like it. Um, and that's another danger in kind of getting caught in defining certain experiences as good meditation, because then everything else seems to fall short, you know, and it's not, and maybe it's really even better, you know, maybe it's, it's a, an ever-deepening insight into dukkha, but we don't like it because it doesn't feel the way we think good meditation should feel, you know, with, with bliss and joy and all those nice things. Um, and so getting attached to meditative states as experiences uh, tends to create a lot of suffering because we judge everything else. We say it's not good enough or we try very hard to get it back or we define only that as good experience and we forget that um, it too is changing that it may just be a function of qualities coming together and we don't have to get lost in it. We don't have to try to keep it. Um, and that there's a difference between enjoying it and getting attached to it. You know, because if we get attached to it, we'll try to keep it just that one way. And uh, it really may be time to move on. And we may have moved on, whether we like it or not. So. when I was doing uh, metta meditation in Burma, and I got to the place where uh, we were about to do metta to the enemy or difficult person, Upandita said to me, well, if you don't have an enemy, you don't have to create one. So if you don't have any questions, we <laughs> really, you don't have to create any. It's all right. Okay, thank you.
Do you have any questions about your practice? Sitting, walking, anything? Alma? Yes. Um, You know, I wouldn't worry so much about this uh, distinction between concentration and mindfulness. I know it's come up a lot in the course. Um, It's more kind of to the point to see the distinction between concentration practices and mindfulness practices, not between the actual factors of mind necessarily in a given hour. Um, If you're doing a concentration practice, then since the the stated goal is to cherish or stay connected to that chosen object, whatever it is, everything else that comes up is considered a distraction. And so as gently but as quickly as possible, we simply let go of it and return the attention back to that chosen object. So any of the Brahma-viharas, for example, are concentration practices. Our first uh, avenue of approach to anything other than the phrase that comes up, um, another emotional state like anger, uh, a train of thought, planning, whatever it is, we're not particularly trying to investigate it or... Uh, note it, but simply to let go of it as quickly as possible and come back to the chosen object. In mindfulness practice, obviously, we, we relate differently to the various things that come. We don't simply try to pay attention to the breath, um, but if something arises that is strong enough to take the attention away from the breath or whatever primary object there is, then we connect as fully as possible to that. We note it, we look at it, and only after some time do we return the attention. And so there are different approaches um, to practice and how to relate to the various experiences of practice. But to try to determine in any given hour whether you have uh, more concentration than mindfulness is is probably not going to be either possible or or really useful. There is a balance between, very classically, between concentration and energy, um, which is useful uh, to assess, not constantly, you know, but um, within some, say, part of a day. If concentration is much stronger than energy uh, at any given period, then you will find yourself in the sitting going off into a very calm and peaceful but dreamy, drifty state. And there won't be a sense of clarity or accuracy or or precision at all. If that state deepens enough, you will fall asleep. But it's not sleepiness coming from sloth, necessarily. It's coming from having more concentration cooking than 
than energy. And so what we try to do is not lose the concentration, but also build up the energy, pick it up. Um, Noting, sitting with your eyes open, straightening up, maybe standing, maybe doing more walking, all things like that can keep the continuity going, but pick up the energy. Sometimes there's more energy than, than concentration or calm. And so you feel very excited and enthusiastic and, and interested and um, really juiced, you know, and, and a lot's going on. But uh, it's almost like your attention lands on an object and jumps off it because you can't settle, you can't uh, connect, and there's not enough just basic tranquility going. And then we try to not um, dissipate the energy. Sometimes when there's a lot of energy, it feels so bad, you know, we feel so jumpy that we just want to get rid of the energy, just discharge it so we can come back to a, a better feeling state. But rather than dissipate it, we simply try to ground it So you might walk and really feel yourself within the body, within the step. Um, Feel your feet against the ground. In sitting, when there's a lot of restlessness, we do one of two things. There's a lot of energy, which is manifesting as restlessness. Either we try to simplify and just in a very light and smooth way feel the breath.
Sutta? Uh, the word in Pali, sutta, S-U-T-T-A, is the same as the word in um, Sanskrit for sutra, which is a, you know, a teaching or a discourse of the Buddhas. I don't know a particular uh, discourse, but I think it's a theme <laughs> that, that appears, yeah. <laughs> you need to know which one, or you need to know? You need to know which sutta, or you need to know uh, about it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Well, it, it occurs in, in several different ways. When uh, concentration and when qualities like concentration and rapture, uh, particularly those two, but other of the different factors of enlightenment are getting developed, then because of that uh, particular quality of energy returning and, and coming together and unifying, there are a lot of uh, pleasant, even glorious kinds of experiences that happen. Um, the actual experiences are temporary manifestations of the concentration uh, and, and the other qualities. Sometimes when concentration gets very strong and even when <clears throat> rapture gets very strong, the manifestations are unpleasant. You know, people feel strange sensations in the body that they don't really like. And uh, you know, then they go to a teacher and the teacher kind of smiles and says, oh, that's rapture. <laughs> and usually you think, are you crazy? You know, <laughs> like that's not rapture. Um, but it really is just about these, um, these temporary manifestations of those qualities. When the manifestation is pleasant, of course, we like it. And we forget that it's just, in some ways, a side product. It's like a, taking a, a pill and having a side effect. Um, and so we get lost in uh, either analyzing it, trying to figure out what it's about, or trying to hold on to it, trying to recreate it, make it happen again. And it's really all beside the point. You know, it's just something that's happening as a function of these qualities growing stronger. Um, there are certain times in the practice uh, <clears throat> when there's also a lot of insight developing. And if you go back to an understanding of the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and uh, essencelessness, or selflessness, the practice without our <clears throat> predetermination and without our decision and even without our permission winds its way through different levels of seeing those three insights. And each of those insights has its own feeling tone so that uh, when we're 
developing <coughs> insight into into dukkha, into unsatisfactoriness, it doesn't feel the same way as it does when we're developing insight into anatta. Um, and impermanence, even within impermanence, there are many different kinds of feelings and flavors, so that if in the practice the mind is just naturally alighting upon or falling upon the beginnings of things, uh, it you know, we're seeing coming into being, we're seeing renewing, we're seeing arising. Um, it's like seeing birth, you know, and it's, it's wonderful. It tends to be a period of practice which feels really good. Uh, and anybody would call it like a peak experience, you know. It's, it's all that wonderful feeling of things coming into being. And then there are times when, again, it's not, you know, it's not a question of our, something under our control. It's just a, a movement. It's a natural evolution through practice. There are times when the mind is naturally alighting upon the endings of things, and everything's to be, seems, everything seems to be passing away, and it's very vague. We feel like we can't really connect to anything. It's, um, uh, sometimes people describe it like there's a veil between their awareness and, and the object and the experience, and they can't really connect, and there's there doesn't seem to be anything to hold on to, and, and there's not even really anything to experience. You know, it's all so fleeting, and, and that doesn't tend to be a very glorious period in practice in terms of our interpretation and our relationship to it. You know, most people don't like that. Um, and yet it's just always changing. You know, sometimes we're seeing impermanence in one way, sometimes we're seeing it in another way, sometimes we're seeing dukkha, even if we'd really rather not. You know, sometimes we're seeing anatta, and yet we can't make that last either. Uh, so it's always, it's always this, this flow of deepening insight, but we don't always like it. Um, and that's another danger in kind of getting caught in defining certain experiences as good meditation because then everything else seems to fall short you know and it's not and maybe it's really even better you know maybe it's it's a an ever deepening insight into dukkha but we don't like it because it doesn't feel the way we think good meditation should feel you know with with bliss and joy and all those nice things um and so getting attached to meditative states as experiences uh, tends to create a lot of suffering because we judge everything else. We say it's not good enough, or we try very hard to get it back, or we define only that as a good experience, and we forget that um, it too is changing, that it may just be a function of qualities coming together, and we don't have to get lost in it. We don't have to try to keep it. Um, and that there's a difference between enjoying it and getting attached to it, you know, because if we get attached to it, we'll try to keep it just that one way, and uh, it really may be time to move on. And we may have moved on, whether we like it or not, so.
Okay. When I was doing uh, metta meditation in Burma, and I got to the place where uh, we're about to do metta to the enemy or difficult person, Upandita said to me, well, if you don't have an enemy, you don't have to create one. So if you don't have any questions, really, you don't have to create any. It's all right. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.